Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm awfully uh, glad to be spending this hour with you, and I'm excited. I was listening to an ad on the radio yesterday, and it said, Does your dog stink, itch, scratch, or shed? And I thought, huh, that, that applies to me and probably all the guys in my studio right now because <laughs> we have a uh, guy talk coming up, and I'm going to be joined in studio by Dr. Peter Kapsner, Pastor Tom Brock, and the co-host of Real Recovery, George Fraser. We're going to cover a little bit of anything and everything such an hour I look forward to. So uh, let's take a, a 60 second break and get things started. We all appreciate consistency in our daily lives hot water for the shower, electricity, reliable transportation, and even our favorite radio station. We'd miss it if it wasn't there. I'm Neil Stave, a manager of Faith Radio, with a reminder that the daily Bible teaching and preaching and compelling conversations on Faith Radio are available day by day because of the consistent support that keeps his ministry on the air and online and available on the app and on demand through podcasts. The growing media outreach of Faith Radio impacts thousands of lives regularly, dependably, and consistently. And it couldn't happen or wouldn't happen without the gifts of those who benefit and know the value of these daily broadcasts. Now, many partner with us as ongoing monthly givers, showing their consistency of support to the ministry that feeds them daily. If you're receiving daily benefit, encouragement, and instruction, join our giving team and begin your ongoing support. Make a gift today at MyFaithRadio.com. Welcome back to the show. Awfully glad to be joined by my uh, friends in studio, Dr. Peter Kapsner, Pastor Tom Brock, and George Fraser, the co-host of Real Recovery. You are getting ready uh, to enjoy an hour of Guy Talk. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. Thanks, Bill. Nice. Well, hey, George, this is your first appearance on Guy Talk. <laughs> you know, it should be real Guy Talk in my mind, yeah. No, yeah. I listen to it. I love the show, and I, and I know these guys, they're great. So yeah. thanks for having me on. Yeah, so we uh, on the Guy Talk like to uh, talk about a little bit of anything and everything, and and today, I think we're going to start with something uh, like a, a little bit of a light, easy, softball top topic. Let's jump into predestination. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> Who wants to take the first shot? I will. All right. Tom Brock. Tom Brock, go ahead. You know, real quick, just for our listeners, there's three main views. One is called free will, that God chooses to save everybody, and you decide on your own free will if you accept Christ or not. It's a very popular view. It's a Wesleyan uh, Methodist kind of view. Second view, this it's called single predestination, and this is the Lutheran view that if you are saved, it is only because God predestined you to be saved. You cannot come to Christ on your own free will. You don't have free will when it comes to God. We are bound to sin, and it's only when the Holy Spirit overcomes our evil will that we're saved. Single predestination means if you're saved, it is 100% the grace of God that saved you, but somehow if you're damned, it's your own fault. 
And then the third view is called double predestination. This is the Calvinist view, and they teach if you are saved, it's because you were predestined to be saved. If you were damned, it's because you were predestined to be damned. And I'm a Lutheran. I tend to the Lutheran view. I will say that when I read Romans chapter 9, I wonder if the Calvinists might be right. Because mm-hmm. Paul says, who, who will find fault then for who can resist God's will? And Paul's, and that question doesn't make sense much unless some heavy-duty predestination is going on. And Paul's response is, don't talk back to God. You know. So there you go. That's, that, in a nutshell, are the main three views. Well stated, <laughs> Pastor Tom Brock. Who's next? That was a very short show. We should. Nah. <laughs> uh, Peter? I, I can take a whack at it. I can say this. In, in 15, 20 years of university teaching and being in, in theology and Bible programs, I would say this, that I have yet to attend a class or talk with a professor or read a systematic theology book that I feel has an entirely satisfactory solution to this. I, I think somebody who claims that they have this sort of locked and key thrown away, like the whole thing is all just sort of locked down for them. Mm, and there's, all, there's just problems on every side of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, if you go too far one way, you're sort of compromising God's sovereignty, and that becomes a problem. If you go far too far the other way, and it's something we were chatting about off air, is then how can God hold somebody accountable when they were created expressly for hell, to use the double pre- predestination mm-hmm. sort of language? And so there isn't a satisfactory solution to this. Uh, I did have a professor at one point who sort of lost me pretty quickly in the conversation, but he identified maybe sort of the core problem of predestination and free will and accountability is that we are asking time and space questions like sort of agency or sequence questions, meaning God is acting in time. And so God is doing something and we experience the effect of it, whether we go to heaven or to hell. And they're all time questions, but God is living outside of time. So we're asking questions from the perspective of time of a timeless God. And that, I, I thought that that did a pretty good job identifying why there's not actually sort of this lockdown solution to it. But then as he tried to reconstruct a solution, he lost me altogether. I didn't feel it was terribly helpful. But but I, I would be hesitant to say this is the solution to the issue because I think you can poke holes in just about any view. And can I say, too, I, uh, John Piper helped me out on this one just hearing his preaching. A lot of people say, well— both free will and predestination are true. It's a paradox. And John Piper doesn't like that, and neither do I, because John Piper would say, along with Martin Luther and Calvin, free will doesn't exist in the sense of you being able to choose God on your own. Luther would say, you can choose chocolate ice cream over vanilla. Okay, fine. But when it comes to God, we are so bound to sin by our original sin that... Uh, and so here's what, what Piper said that helped. that The paradox is not between free will, which isn't biblical from my point of view, and predestination. It's between human accountability and predestination. And Piper would say that how can God predestine me and then hold me accountable for rejecting Christ if that's part of uh, God being in control? And that's where Piper says, that's where you throw up your hands and say, we'll find out someday. Yeah, but if it's predestination, how could he hold somebody accountable for their sinning? Yeah, I, I mean, it, can't it go both ways? We brought this up before we went on the air, right. and I am not a pastor, a struggling believer. I know that I got saved. I had nothing to do with it. But that seems to me 
almost evil for God to create people just mm-hmm. to send them to hell for his glory. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, and then it, if. Well, lightning it, bolt. No, where does it say that? That he would send him to hell for his glory? Well, if he's going to save people for his glory. Mm-hmm. The Rom- Romans 9 gets close. I mean, it yeah. says some vessels are prepared for destruction and some vessels are prepared for. I mean, it's kind of like, how can God hold Judas accountable when Judas was carrying out God's plan of getting Christ crucified? Well, it's kind of like, how could God, who was it? The Old Testament guy that spanked the Jews under God's plan, and then God turned around and and judged him for spanking the Jews. Because the verse is, but it was not in your heart to carry out my plan. You were just doing it to be evil. So. So maybe the motives are different. That's one help. But, okay. But uh, we're beyond, you know, my, this is one of the first questions I want to ask of God in heaven is how can, how can you hold us accountable when you're the ones that's predestined everything? And again, I, I would just encourage our listeners, read slowly and carefully Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. And this is what changed my mind to become somebody that believes, or, or just that believes in predestination. Just read Acts. Mm-hmm. The apostles are preaching, right. and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. The Lord opened Lydia's heart to believe in, in the apostles' teaching. So it's in there. The Ephesians too. Mm-hmm. Um, but the part for me as a struggling believer uh, is that when I get real solid doctrine, my heart shrivels up. Mm-hmm. And, and the hard part for me is, I believe this, uh, my favorite pastors, Jason Meyer at Bethlehem, and then Keller. But for me, the more I know, it's hard to not take that and be prideful and limiting on people and kind of hand out tickets for God. And I, I don't find them as joyful as mm-hmm. before. Well, and I think, that, it, you know, I think, George, one of the critiques of predestination, and I think it's a justifiable one in terms of if, if love is the central heartbeat of God's kingdom, um, to be loved by somebody out of a place of choice and being chosen is it feels like authentic love. Like if my wife loved me because she was somehow predestined and didn't have a choice in that matter, she was just sort of this robotic, she was pre-programmed to love me. It wouldn't be that sense of this mutuality, the sense of love that does make the heart, I think, begin to expand, that does make the heart right. feel like you're sort of in this rich and full relationship where two people have this authentic love. So it's, it's one of those critiques I think our heart feels uh, around the head of the doctrine around it as we struggle through what this doctrine is because we want to be involved. We want to be agents. It, th- this idea of it's all you, not me is a really common phrase, but there's been other ways to think about it relative to the kingdom too. But then if you're not careful, then suddenly God's going to get cut out of the equation. So it's that, you know, there's a lot of theologians that talk about the mysterious dual agency, or as Dallas Willard says, we are co-conspirators in the kingdom with God, where there's, there is an agency among us both. And, uh, and it's not always easy to sort out, but I think our, our heart rises to the idea that we're actually involved in this thing. I, I do want to say if, if my salvation depends even half an inch on me, I'm in trouble because I will blow that much. Hmm. I want my salvation to be 100% dependent on God. I, I, this, some of the, and, you know, when, when people say, well, God doesn't want robots, so he gave us free will so we can choose him freely uh, out of love instead of compulsion. Okay, I hear that, and it's a good, and they're trying to defend what they think is, is fair. I don't know any verse that teaches that, that God 
in order so he God could be loved freely, he gave us free will. I just don't know a verse that teaches that. Yeah, it's that. sort of derived from the idea right. that the kingdom is it's more love. Of, so, it's more right. a rationale. And I think people are trying to be to defend God. They don't want God to look as heavy-duty as predestination makes God out to be. But again, read Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 and do what you think, you know? How much scripture did you know when you got saved? Boy, uh, maybe five verses that were taught in okay. Awana. I mean, truly, yeah. you know, okay. it's you, you can rattle them off, right? It's John three sixteen. Mm-hmm. It's it's maybe Ephesians two eight nine. It's a bit of Romans three twenty three mixed in, and and yeah. you know, there's sort of those that handful of verses that oh, we think sort yeah. of comprise the mm-hmm. entire scriptures. Yeah, you know, for me, getting back to what Tom said, I agree with you. I had nothing to do with my salvation. But the fact that I'm in the club and other people aren't, mm-hmm. that I almost said, well, my God, you know, and that's the danger. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, once everybody's saved, and it says that in what, Second Peter it or sure something? It does. Mm-hmm. Yep, God is not willing that anyone should perish, but that all go. should come to the knowledge of mm-hmm. the truth. So that, how do you put that verse together with... Um, so he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whom he wills. Romans well, 9. Yeah, yeah, how do you put those two together? And that's what I'm waiting for. Uh, again, that is going to be something I want to ask the Lord. <laughs> all right, we're taking so, a little break. You're listening to Guide Talk. We'll take a 90-second break and be right back. back to the show. We are enjoying Guide Talk, and we try to do this every Thursday. And I'm joined in studio by Dr. Peter Kapsner, Pastor Tom Brock, and George Fraser, the co-host of Real Recovery. And I think we opened up uh, the discussion today, gentlemen, with kind of a, a challenging topic, uh, predestination. And when I look at the verse out of Revelations 13, it basically says that uh, all the names were written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the creation of the world. It's kind of an interesting thought to believe that the names that were there started before the world began. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say that's that's among the, I think, 2,450 verses I haven't actually studied <laughs> uh, when it comes to the entirety of the text. So uh-huh. I'm, I'm going to want to look at that one a little bit more carefully yeah. for sure. Yeah. I got stumped when I used to go down to talk to Piper at Bethlehem because everybody else was afraid of him. And uh, nice guy. And I asked him about this one time. He said, George, that's what the Bible says to me. But here's a question for you. I'll throw it out to you guys. Do you think God's going to leave it up to man to decide who's in heaven? Nope. <laughs> God is God. And, you know, Martin Luther, uh, first of all, Erasmus was a Catholic scholar that wrote a book called The Freedom of the Will. Martin Luther read it, hated it, and wrote a response called The Bondage of the Will, meaning that we can't come to God on our own free will. It's only by the grace of God that we we come to Christ. And he said... And and then Erasmus responded and said, well, but if your God is that much in control of things, you know, then God's in control of people's salvation and their damnation. And Luther's response was, well, let God be God. God is going to do whatever he wants anyway. And your question is is good. God determines who's saved and who isn't, not us. And I like that. I don't want us to determine our salvation. Correct. <laughs> so... 
See, I, you know, <clears throat> not to be the stick in the mud, but I, I would probably tend a little bit more towards the human agency aspect of this, leaning into what we talked about earlier, is that um, what I see pulsating through God's kingdom from the beginning of the story to the end is what I referenced earlier, and that's his kingdom is not filled with um, power and sovereignty as much as it's filled with love. Mm-hmm. And and so with love being the heartbeat of the kingdom, there, there's a dimension of that um, where if God is going to be grieved, as the text talks about God being grieved by those who don't choose his kingdom, there, there's somewhere in there that I'm trying to create some conceptual space that there's actual choice for yeah. people and that and that people can decide to turn their back on God as opposed to, hey, you know, I prayed a prayer when I was six years old and I really meant it at church that day and then I decided to live the rest of my life as a pirate and I don't want to have anything to do with the kingdom yeah. for 75 years and I get to the other side and I even get a chance to look into the heavenly kingdom and God says, um, you know, I know you don't want to have anything to do with my eternity and with my kingdom and stuff. And you would actually like to be a pirate forever and ever and ever. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but you prayed a prayer when you were six. And so I'm dragging you in by the ear, whether you like it or not. Like, no, I don't, I, and I'm not, that's, it, I know no. it doesn't work that way, but I'm just suggesting that I think there is also biblical evidence for the idea of an authenticity, authenticity of human choice. Uh, but I don't, in fairness, I don't think it necessarily compromises God's sovereignty that he would set it up in some way to allow for human agency. Well, for people sense. like me, you've got to quote verses like, and the Lord was grieved that he made Saul right. over, king over Israel. Right. What do we do with stuff like that? So, I, again, I'm not saying this is easy, but, you know, the, the, the principle is when you're trying to decide what to believe about a topic, you go to the area of Scripture that deals the most in-depth with that topic. And to me, that's Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. And so, um, you know, but again, this is not, I don't have this all wrapped up. And, yeah, uh, and I don't either. But, you know, Bill, you're the comedian extraordinaire here in the yeah. Twin Cities. What's your point, Tom? Bill, <laughs> Bill what, what does a Calvinist say after he falls down the stairs, Bill? I don't know. What's Whew, Glad that's over with. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty solid. <laughs> I love what you were saying during the break, uh, Tom, about the way people are all Calvinists when they're praying. Yeah, yeah. 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 I was saying off air that... You know, we can believe in free will uh, if you want to, et cetera. But when we pray, we're all Calvinists. Lord, please make Uncle Joe a Christian. Well, if if it's all up to Uncle Joe and his free will, why bother praying? But if God is the one who opens Lydia's heart mm-hmm. to receive the things said by Paul, then I pray like that. Lord, please make my brother a Christian. Do whatever you have to to make him a Christian. And that's kind of a Calvinist prayer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, why would people want to give up authority to their life? and yield to God and surrender to him. We can't want him unless he wants us first. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do think that's an important point, Bill, is that uh, even for somebody like me who would be trying to allow for some sort of authentic human space for choice, that uh, when you read those passages that says we love because God first loved us, that I would not be capable of entering into the kind of other-centered sort of love that fills the heart and fills this world uh, with sort of God's self if he didn't, if he wasn't the author and initiator of that kind of love. Otherwise, my love is an idolatrous kind of love. It is a love that's more self-serving. I would have no idea what love actually would be. So regardless of where you fall on this, from a sense of sovereignty, you can say something to the effect of God's kingdom is going to remain. Uh, there is nothing that can compromise it. That There is nothing that will stand against it. It is sovereign in that sense. It's then my choice as to whether I want to participate in it. But my participation or lack thereof doesn't change where the future is headed. This world is going to be redeemed. God's kingdom is going mm-hmm. to reign. Some people are going to say yes to it, and some people are going to say no. And can I tell you how I think God saves us? <laughs> I, have, I knew a guy named Buddy Balo, 
Tom, did I ever tell you how I got saved? My friend dragged me to this evangelism meeting. I didn't want to go, so I'm in the back row leaning against the wall. The evangelist at the end says, if you've never accepted Christ, come forward. And Buddy Balo said, I felt a push in my back. Hmm. I turned around, just bricks. Mm-hmm. Second time, if you've never accepted Christ, come forward. He said, second time, I felt a push. Third and final time, if you, he said the third push was so strong, it kind of knocked him on his feet all the way up to the altar, and he got saved. And see, I think when people say God doesn't use force to save people, you better believe he does. I pray good. I mean, think of Paul, knocked down, drank, blinded for three days. I call that force. Yeah. And I, I praise God he uses force yeah. to save us. Because on my own, left on my own, I love sin so much, I would never come to God on my own. So, Great. I, I've never thought about that before, Tom. <laughs> That's really an interesting point. I mean, if you are see someone walking through a field and they're about to step into a big, mm-hmm. gigantic hole, do you want to go, yoo-hoo, or do you want to knock them out of the way <laughs> yeah. and save their life? Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I'm, I'm okay with the idea that we're going to get in each other's faces and sometimes be forceful, and God would also use some non-traditional ways, mm-hmm. like he did with Paul mm-hmm. or Saul. Well, and I think, and, and George, I know you're in the world of recovery quite often too and stuff. I mean, can you imagine how many people that don't have their trajectory change if somebody doesn't get into their face at some point in time, right? Uh, you know, that's what's going to bring that up. I am coming to believe that people are either called for recovery or, or they aren't. Mm. Why did I get sober? Because I wanted it more mm-hmm. than others. I didn't want to get sober. Mm-hmm. you got to be kidding me. Mm-hmm. Why did I get saved? I didn't want to go to hell. And I think... God made that very clear that that's what was coming, Bill. Mm-hmm. I've never done a show with him where he could actually hit me. It feels kind of good. Just so you know, it feels kind of good. Are break. you right or left-handed, Arnold? <laughs> yeah. But uh, this is interesting to me because I kind of think it's a both and. It doesn't change how I feel about God except make me get on my knees and want to worship the awesomeness of him. Mm. That he, however he did it, saved us. Yeah. I wouldn't have saved me. You know what I mean? I wouldn't have. Now I might look at it, but back then. But I think, Peter, in your question, why do some people get sober and others don't? I don't know. And guys I think are going to make it don't. And guys who should or, you know, guys who make it, I'm shocked. Hey, how did you do that? So we preach to everybody. um, But I I think God's got to the Holy Spirit has to hitch and go, Okay, this is bad. And not only this, but we get into the putting off the old and putting on the new. Not only is that bad for you, but I got something a lot better. Mm -hmm. Because people don't change or leave a relationship unless there's something better. We always got to go to that, I think. Mm. And if I get, I was following the news this week, and I'm an uh, old New York Mets baseball fan, and Dwight Gooden was a really, like, superstar pitcher in the 1980s and I saw just this last week he came out and he had to go back into rehab again in his 50s and I thought how does a person ever get through this he's not a professed believer can you actually walk to the other side of recovery without having people with you and with the spirit helping along the way well I think there's a general grace here that you don't have to be a Christian to get sober and one of the dangers is we see in the recovery movements the course of miracles has become real popular People change, but they have a God like Paul said, the unknown God. Yeah, and the Course of Miracles is a New Age bad teaching, just so people know. And, you know, one other thing on predestination, the verse from Romans, those whom he foreknew, God also predestined. And and some people think that means, well, God saw ahead of time that I was going to receive Christ, and that's the basis on which he predestined me. We don't want to say that, you know, for now, knowing in in the biblical term, Adam knew his wife, you know. It's a loving, a for loving. And 
you don't want to say that God predestined me because he saw I was more open to the gospel or that I'm better than my brother or whatever, because then you get into salvation by works. So you want to say what you know the, what the reformers said that's unconditional election. God predestined me not because there's something wonderful in me, but because there's something wonderful in Him. All right, that uh, we're going to take a little break. Guide talk is underway, and uh, Pastor Tom Brock, Dr. Peter Kapster, and George Fraser are my guests. After a short break, we will be back with lots more. show. Awfully glad to have my friends in studio with me, Dr. Peter Kapsner, Pastor Tom Brock, and George Fraser. We're doing Guy Talk, which we do on Thursdays, and we've been uh, having a very lively discussion. Um, and if you've missed any of it, you're going to want to go back, because we were talking about predestination. It's kind of a hot topic, but I thought it'd be fun to get everyone's uh, take on it. And now I would love to uh, switch gears just a little bit, because um, I know that modern idolatry is... Uh, has one thing in common, and that is the self. We're all interested in the in the God of self. Um, so we all struggle with little idols. I think I think it was Augustine that said our our heart is a manufacturing idol center where we want stuff and we want material possessions and we want uh, more of stuff, and it causes a lot of problems. But I'd love to talk a little bit about modern day idols. Mm. Who would like to jump in on that? <laughs> well, this is my strong suit. <laughs> yeah. You lead off. Well, uh, Leading I, off I for the twins. Any, anything besides God. Center fielder. George, George. Fraser. Number seven. Yeah, number seven. Number Bob Casey. Oh, yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah. <laughs> what a great job. Yeah, thanks. Um, I think for me it's anything that I put ahead of God, and that starts with me. I, you know, I'll throw this off to the to the pastors, the doctors here, that um, if it says that you shall have no other gods before me, the number one commandment, that would be including George Fraser. Mm. And I think every time I sin, I'm choosing to follow me rather than God. That's really a lack of faith if I love God, because I think my way is going to be better yep. and more interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think, I mean, if, if the heart of idolatry or one of the hearts is idolatry is I believe that whatever this thing I'm making an idol out of has a better future for me than God does, yep. that can, of course, include me. Like, I think I have a better pathway that I can make in the future for a sense of safety and security and peace and wholeness. And and most often, I suppose over the course of my life, there's many different manifestations of idols that I followed over time. I would say the current one at 48 years old is sort of this idea of what does it mean to descend? What does it mean to become... Um, less known in life, I suppose. As a university professor, you kind of walk around campus and the students know you and you think you have influence and you think you have the sort of sphere of, uh, of, of people that listen to what you have to say. But, you know, most likely sometime in the next 50 years, I ain't going to be here anymore. And so how much weight am I putting into the sense of significance in, in trying to be a teacher in a, in a university? Like the idolatry there is really subtle in the sense that I'm leaning into how well I'm doing in the university life to give my sense of well-being. And that also that sounds great. It's a Christian university. I'm giving away stuff to the future to the kids. But if I'm leaning into that for my sense of well-being, then I already have substituted a truth for a lie in that moment. But I can think of so many idols in my life throughout past and probably future ones that are waiting. Maybe here's a verse that's one-stop shopping when it comes to modern-day idols, and that would be First John 2.16. 
For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of this world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And w- when you talk about idolatry, I think of pornography. And when I was a kid, there was one copy of Playboy under the counter at the drugstore. Mm-hmm. Today, children can turn on their phone and get hardcore pornography. And I asked a friend of mine who's an expert on the technical side. I said, yeah, because I don't have kids. I said, yeah, but parents are putting blocks on their kids' screen phones so they can't see that stuff, right? And he said, overwhelmingly, parents have no idea how to do that. Hmm. So you've got all these kids accessing hardcore pornography. And I like what was said earlier. Anytime I look at pornography or do anything like like that, it's because I think my way is better than God's way. Mm -hmm. And this is just the stupidity of the flesh. God is the one who loves us. His way is better. So anytime I look at something on TV I shouldn't or whatever, it's me thinking, well, my way is best. God doesn't know what he's doing. And that's where idolatry comes about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well said. Well, and, and what should do? I th- I think for me in our culture, and and I was an outsider to the Christianity. Went to Bethel, you know, kind of almost court ordered, you know. And, uh, <laughs> but it saved my life. But you know, when we were there, we read a book, um, "Rich Christians in a Hungry World" by Ronald J. Sider. And I came from Edina. It's not why I said a Peter, but we did the best we could. And <laughs> the guys there weren't interested in money. And what I've seen as a Christian in the 40 years since about, I can't tell Christians from secular society. Yeah. In the politics, uh, we we honor Christians who have big businesses. Yep. I was in business. It's hard to be a Christian in business, and I think we've merged the two, where when I went to Bethel, these guys were kind of weird mm-hmm. in a good way. I think we've lost our weirdness. Mm-hmm. Not looking for feedback on me. I've always been kind of weird. But you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There's yeah. not. A, I think we've merged it with the culture, Billy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think one of, the, one of the most subtle ways in which idolatry manifests itself in the church is what you just said, is when we use the phrase the church as a business— uh, I don't see anywhere in the biblical text that it says the church is actually a business. You might say that the people of God who are gathering together have economic realities that they need to deal with. That's different than saying the church is a business. <clears throat> as soon as you say the church is a business, you can suddenly have a more allegiance to the financial success and the numerical success of the church than you actually do to God's kingdom. And you start losing your sense of saltiness and you start losing your sense of light because you're more committed to the organization than you actually are to God's kingdom moving forward. And, and the weirdness that we're called to, to live countercultural. But as soon as the church is a business, you are making a whole series of new commitments. I think we want both. I want the Christianity, but you know, a couple billion dollars in my own jet would be cool. Right. It would be the worst thing that could ever happen. <laughs> Well, here's a little, to me, here's idolatry as well. Why do Christians vote for pro-abortion candidates? Well, it's going to be better for my my checkbook if I vote for this candidate. Yeah, but this candidate is for no restrictions on abortion. Yeah, but I think it's be better for my economy. I think when it comes to who we vote for, I see idolatry, that it's all about my pocketbook and who cares if these 3,000 babies a day are killed. To me, that's a form of idolatry. Yeah. So. so when we go back to the topic of idols and when we start putting, like you said, George, elevating things above God, and then we have an idol, isn't there usually what's associated with idols is a lot of self-medicating? Maybe, George, you could speak to that. Mm. 
Oh, thanks, Bill. That's all right, George. <laughs> I'll come back and tell you. I'm going to take care of it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I ne- you know, I never used for self-medicating. I like getting high. Yeah. But there's a really good thing I saw on uh, ESPN the other night. A, a guy named uh, Heron, who was a basketball player for the Celtics. Have you seen this, Peter? I think so. It's the best drug talk. Everybody should show that to their kids. But I think that's it. There's that little guy inside that is scared, and we don't talk about it. And you start doing drugs, and you feel better. I, I, I think it's more of a pursuit of pleasure, Billy, than an escape. For a lot of us, I think for some people, there's a traumatic event, a wound. But I think for a lot of us, it's what's the next pleasure. I want I want comfort. I want action. I want to feel good and I want to get high Uh, and I want excitement. You know, this Christian thing can get kind of boring. I mean, I got Jesus now. Let's roll. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's such an interesting point you make there, too, George, because when I read the book of Acts, I don't see that there was a boring life that they were leading mm-hmm. as they were following Jesus into the known, uh, unknown as, as a group of people uh, bound together by the Spirit and being led into crazy places and crazy situations and stuff that absolutely would be crazy life-giving in the sense of even the adrenaline that would go with it. When you read well, the stories of Paul and Peter and John and all of these people as, as they're following Jesus in that way, I don't know that we're called to some sort of boring life where we try to abide by a series of moral principles. Like, I think there's a, a much yes. greater call in our life than that. I think that Satan's um, deception. But I go back to Tom about the Playboy when I was Mm -hmm. little. Man, that was a big deal. You know, baseball was fun, but this was, and it's forbidden. Right. And I think Satan deceives, hey, you know, this stuff's better. Mm -hmm. My experience, Tom, has been I tried most things that most people think about but have better judgment. And there's a way that seems right to man that ends in death. And there was a farm boy who had a very strange hobby. He could take cow manure and make a sculpture out of it, bake it in the sun, paint it, and he could make it look like a real apple. But don't bite into that apple. And see, that's what Satan does. He takes pornography, uh, drugs, fill in the blank. He can make it look really pretty, and you bite into it, and you get what you get. And my point again is, if we believe that God wants what's best for me, the stupidity of the flesh is to say, no, I know what's best, and then you get messed up. Great story, and I'm relieved you weren't talking about yourself. I didn't know, I didn't know where you were going <laughs> with that. Boy. No, I didn't know go. that. So, no. um, it, it's a great topic because I think we all struggle with it. It's just what is your deal, right? Yeah, I, I think in, when we go back to our previous conversation, even on predestination, is that I find it compelling that the Bible never actually says that you are you are invited or, or called to know the truth of everything in terms of like you're called to understand everything. What you are called to do is to trust. Yep. And uh, and so trust in the lack of understanding or uh, when you have an idol in front of you like pornography or you have an idol in front of you like a job that you think is going to sustain you through eternity or you have a relationship that you think is finally going to bring the peace that your soul so, is, so desires. It's sitting right there and it's easy to then sacrifice the trust you have in God for your future and substitute that for what's right in front of you. And yep. so, I mean, we've been talking a little bit about the heartbeat of the kingdom being love too, but trust is the entry into the kingdom. If you really want to be part of this deal, you've got to give it all up and say, I trust and, you instead, And the God. truth is, yes, you do. And to believe in the Lord Jesus, trust in the Lord Jesus, you'll be saved. Sadly, until the second coming or my death, my trust in Christ is going to be mixed with all this doubt. Absolutely. You know, so. Okay, how do I do that? I mean, you know, I agree mm-hmm. with everything we're talking about in here about, yeah, it's like you should have the joy of the Lord. How do I get that? Yeah, it's, boy, that's a, 
<laughs> it's a big Just question. killed the whole show right there. But yeah. Yeah, no, that's the problem I get. I, I go to church and one of the problems I get, and I think that's great. How do I do that? And, and I think for a lot of us, that's the big struggle. Well, I think, you know, there's, there's a phrase that I think some of the ancients used to use, which is called a prayer of relinquishment. That was sort of almost a spiritual discipline done day in and day out, where it's the idea of I'm going to get up again today and just take my hands off. Again, all the things, I, I, I don't know about you, George, but I find that I, I don't start gripping something really tightly for my sense of well-being all at once, but give it a couple of days, give it a week, give it a month. Suddenly my job is the most important thing to me. Suddenly this, <laughs> something else. And so what does it mean to relinquish each day? It's a real simple prayer to just pray the morning with. But I think over that time, as as God is saying, you know, just try me, just just try me in this. It, I don't often find myself doing that. I'm trying everything else uh, throughout the course of the day in very subtle ways. So what does it mean to take my hand off the plow just a little bit in terms of what I'm grasping so tightly to, to think that's going to plow my future out for me? And then I think over time you begin to see, you know, God really does actually have my back. And even if life is going to be brutal and tough and hard, like it often is, God still somehow is here in the midst of it. And then I think joy begins to replace some of that. But I don't, I don't know many people that find that journey all at once. I think it's almost always a tearing away of those things that stand in the way. Well said. I, I pray for sobriety before I get out of bed in the morning. Yeah. But over the years, my sobriety has become an idol for me. Fascinating. It's, yeah. it, right? The, the truth can be switched for a lie just like that. You know, that's what a happens. big part of my identity. Oh, George yeah. has been sober a long time. I didn't want to do it. It's God. But, I, you know, it's an idol. Right. Mm. So mm. you, you have a great story, but you can point to yourself a little bit, too. Which I like to do. Well, I mean, you, you can do a little bit of a humble brag, can't you? Sure. I, I don't know anybody more humble than George Fraser. <laughs> 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 uh, uh, I think I'm just going to leave it at that. Time for a commercial, isn't I it? I think it is time okay. for a commercial. We've got uh, many people in the studio that know that it is time for a break. So let's take one. Uh, we're going to rejoin Guy Talk in just 90 seconds. Uh, thank you so much to my guests, Dr. Peter Kapsner, Pastor Tom Brock, and George Fraser. They are the power panel today on Guy Talk. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. Guy Talk is underway. We're just wrapping up uh, another segment, and then uh, we're going to um, go to the uh, Ladies of the Roundtable. That's coming up next. But I have in studio Dr. Peter Kapsner, Pastor Tom Brock, and George Fraser, the co-host of Real Recovery. And I don't know exactly how I want to spend the last couple of minutes we have, and we got another 10. We've been all over the map during the break. What what should we talk about? Why We've got the Lord's Prayer as an option, because that's a great little mini study. Tom, I think you would lead that way, wouldn't you? I would. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Do you okay. want to do, do this? I would love to. Peter, you in? Well, great. then let me quiz these guys, okay. all, all three of you. <laughs> uh, just let's quickly, word by word, go through the Lord's Prayer. Okay. The word our. Now, here's my question for you guys. Forgive us our trespasses. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us. Why are there all those plurals in the Lord's Prayer? Why do you think? Instead of my father, forgive me my trespasses, why is it, why is it all plural? 
church. We're in this together. Amen. Yeah. Absolutely. Amen. Yeah. Every Christian is part of the church. Mm-hmm. And when people say, well, I like my the, answer better than I got it. I got it. I got it. got it. When answer. people say, well, it doesn't say in the Bible, you have to go to church to be a Christian. My response is, where is that in the Bible? My Bible says, Hebrews 10, do not forsake the assembly. So yet every Christian is to be part of the church. Next word, father. What do you think the word father indicates in the Lord's Prayer? What does that mean? It's my father. Meaning? Abba, father. Uh, yeah, there's a closeness. He wants an intimate relationship with us. Okay. And so I think uh, that's true. what, and again, just real quick, we don't pray to our mother who art in heaven like some are doing in our churches. Anyway, our father, next. Who art in heaven? What does that mean? Why, why is that included in the Lord's Prayer? George, you're two for two. I'm just yeah. I'm shutting down over here. Because well, he's in heaven. He's mm-hmm. everywhere, but he's in heaven. Right. And, or not. Uh, this is called the transcendence of God. He's intimate. He's our father. But he's also mm-hmm. separate from us. He's in heaven. We're not him. Ellen DeGeneres said, quote, I believe in God. I believe God is everywhere. I go outside and say, hi, God. I believe God is the trees. I believe God is everything in our human experience. And then Oprah said, I used to believe growing up Jesus came to earth to die for our sins. Now I believe Christ came to earth to get us in touch with our own inner Christ consciousness. In other words, we're all the Christ. This is called pantheism. You know, Buddhism, some of the Eastern religions believe God is everything and everything is God. I think that's the reason Jesus put in the Lord's Prayer, our Father art in heaven. He's separate from us and we're not him. And Tom, what I love about that concept of the heavens, too, is that the heavens and Jewish thinking of that time is not some floating barge of cold that's just beyond the Andromeda galaxy that we get beamed up to and we die. But it really was the idea of the space that God inhabits and dwells, and it, and it's all around us. And mm-hmm. and to your point, God is not the trees. God is not. That's not what we're talking about. But it it speaks to an accessibility of God. Mm-hmm. So when he's saying Samuel's name in the biblical text, he's mm-hmm. not shouting it down from somewhere in Pluto Pluto, and timing it just right. He really, there's an inbreaking of God in our time and space. So yep. there's this dear Abba Father who is as close to us as our next breath. Amen. All right. Our Father who art in heaven, next word, Hollywood be thy name. I heard of a little girl that play, prayed Hollywood. Be thy name. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> what does the word Hollywood mean? Hello. What, uh, what does that holy. mean? Holy, holy, holy be your name. name. And Luther mm-hmm. said, you know, God's name is holy in itself, but we pray in this prayer that it might be hollowed in our lives or holy in our yeah. And you know what? When I was a little boy, you couldn't say, oh, my God, on TV. But I remember when it started, about 1970, the Mary Tyler Moore Show started saying, oh, my God. And, and when I hear I, people need to know that's a sin. You're, you're taking the name of God in vain. Mm. And my habit now is whenever I hear someone say, oh, my God, I stop and pray for him. And I'm doing that a lot because it's just all over our culture. I struggle with that. Mm -hmm. And pray for me on that. I've caught myself lately saying Mm -hmm. that. And I got to go with the gosh. Anything but, but, oh, my it, God. It's a habit. And yeah, it, oh, I know. It's everywhere. Mm-hmm. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy, thy kingdom come. There's the next question. When you pray those words, what are you asking for? I know uh, to the extent that I have, it's it's a sense where I tie it with the next part too, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven in the sense that the the way in which your kingdom reigns in in your world in your realm of heaven 
let that be present and manifest okay. in current time and space in my life so, and in the lives yeah. of those around so me as well. So for you, it's a present tense, and that's true. Mm-hmm. There's also the future. And Correct. I think yep. most people, I think, at least I did growing up, when I prayed thy kingdom come, I was praying for the second coming. Lord Jesus, come back and set things right. <laughs> right. You know? So there's the present tense, come presently and be king over my heart, mm-hmm. and future tense at the second coming. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Why does Jesus put the word daily in there? Because you got to pick up your cross and deny yourself daily. Matthew six thirty four. do not worry about tomorrow. Each day has enough mm-hmm. trouble of its own. I think it's broken down that we're just have a to do today, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And, and yep. break it up in mm-hmm. those increments because we're always getting ahead of yep. ourselves. Good. And I is love that, the tie. Is that right yeah, and I, and I love that that phraseology ties into some of the Old Testament Hebrew, maybe some of the precedent for this when they the Israelites were wandering around the desert and there was no opportunity for them to get any kind of food, and so this mm-hmm. manna appeared every day to sort of teach them to trust God. And if they tried to store the manna to the next day, they would wake up and it was filled with worms, yep. maggots, whatever else. So they couldn't actually store it for the future. They had to trust each day in God's provision, which is exactly consistent with what you're saying there too. I think we uh, we only got a couple minutes, but let's get to we what have the, five. Oh, we do. Yeah, All right, five well, or six. And forgive us our trespasses. Um, I, I'll just make the point here. I think that's a blanket prayer. God, the sins I know about, the sins I don't know about, the sins I've confessed, the sins I haven't confessed. I mean, sometimes I'll, uh, in, when I was teaching confirmation, I'd say to the thirteen-year-olds, "Here's two Christians driving in a car. One says GDU. Well, GDU, and they boom a." bus hits them, they die before they have time to ask for forgiveness. Did they go to heaven and hell? Oh, they went to hell. Why? Because they didn't have time to ask for forgiveness. And you got to make the point, well, nobody's going to have time to ask for Our salvation depends on Christ on the cross, not whether I have enough time to confess all my sins, which nobody does. So I, I think it's a blanket prayer. But all right, so now the Pope. <laughs> uh, forgive us our trespasses. We forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation. Now, the Pope was in the news recently and he, 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 for wanting to change the Lord's Prayer. Did you follow this a few months ago? Mm-hmm. And uh, he wants to change it in, from lead us not into temptation to do not let us fall into temptation. But I looked it up. Literally, it is lead us not into temptation. That's a good translation. So my question for you guys is, does God ever do that? Does God ever lead us into temptation? Yeah, I mean, my understanding of that passage growing up was a recognition of our frailty and saying that, God, I know that sometimes you will lead us into temptation to try and test us, but I'm going to pray this prayer because I know how frail I am. Yep. Okay, I'm going to get shot down here, but I'm willing because I don't know. (laughs) Uh, I thought it said in the book of James that God could not be tempted. I know you know that, so can you explain that to me? Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God himself... uh, cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each one is tempted when he's lured by his flesh. So you want, you want to say God doesn't tempt us, but God does test us. And, it, and I believe, I mean, you have to yeah. correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the original King James translation, that is sort of the, the first translation from Greek into the English, actually uses the word trial instead of temptation as a distinguishing okay. point between some of these things. Because to your point, George, I think it's really helpful. You brought up the exact right point. Wait, lead us not into temptation, but it says that God never will. But I think, Tom, what you're saying in my understanding is, is that there's a difference between I know of my frailty as I head into a trial mm-hmm. that you might lead me into because yeah. God does lead us into trials. He does But God us. does not actually tempt us yeah. towards sin and disobedience would be and, a different And thing. I think we can say this too. The same event in your life can be a test from God 
and a temptation yeah, from the that's devil. that's very fair. If your five-year-old daughter dies, that's a test from God. Will you, will you cling to me? And a temptation from the devil. Well, will God going to let this happen? Let's say nerds to him. You know. Isn't the Bible say that Satan is the tempter? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, in, no. in Matthew, uh, in, I think it's Matthew 4, it says Jesus was led by the Spirit right. into the wilderness to, to be, be tempted. tempted. Yep. And it, and it says in, the, in, in Genesis, I could be wrong on this, but I think the King James says, now God did tempt Abraham to go up on the mountain and kill his son. And it's a, but the word tempt can also mean test. So, okay. you know, so I think that's the difference. God tests us, but the devil tempts us. Mm-hmm. I like and then, that. then the last thing, you, we got time there, Bill? Oh, yeah. Well, last one, our leaves not temptation, deliver, deliver us from evil. Let's just close uh, in this with this one. I, I would make the point, and you're talking about addiction, um, God, there's two ways God can deliver us from evil. He can deliver us out of it, or he can del- deliver us through it. And I, for instance, I've talked on the show before that I've struggled with same-sex attraction most of my life. A lot of uh, some people get delivered just totally out of it. It's not right. even an issue for them anymore. Other people struggle with the temptation till the day they die. And I I know a guy named John. When he got saved, boom, the alcohol, not even a problem for him anymore. Yeah. But then, I, but I don't think that's normal. I think Joe is more normal. Joe. Uh, excuse me, Bob. Bob was a guy I knew, Christian guy, who had years of sobriety, but he said to me, I still have to go to my AA meeting every Friday night or I'll know I'll be in trouble. So there's two ways God delivers us out of evil. He can take us out of it and change our hearts so much we're not even tempted. But I think normally it's more the other way. He gets us through these Mm -hmm. temptations. God never promised to take our temptations away. Well, I think it's great for me. I'm in recovery, and I have a daily deal. Uh, I'm amazed I haven't messed mm-hmm. it up because I messed everything else up. And I always appreciate you talking about your struggle because I think that's the one sin I didn't get. I got the rest of them. <laughs> you uh, want it? <laughs> <laughs> kind of full right now. You know? But uh, my addiction keeps me, it's my thorn in my flesh yeah. that keeps me daily. I got to pray for it. Amen. That's right. Or I mess up. And and I don't mess up like and, kicking the dog. I'm the lead story in the news. I, I right? asked an expert in addiction once, you know, why doesn't God oh take this problem away uh, re- regarding addiction? And he said, what if it's the one thing that keeps you close to God? Yeah. I love that. Yeah, love wow. that. Guys, this has been great fun. Let's never do it again. <laughs> <laughs> that wraps up our guy talk. Uh, if you missed any of it, I know you're going to want to hit rewind. Go to myfaithradio.com. Hear it from the beginning. Thank you, gentlemen. Dr. Peter Kapsner, Pastor Tom Brock, and George Fraser. It's been great having you here. Good to be here. All Thanks, right. Billy. We'll take a short break and be back in just a minute with lots more. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.